Welcome to the Kesset Church Podcast. We are so glad you've joined us and hope you enjoyed today's sermon. If you'd like to find out more about Kesset, you can head to kessetchurch.com or find us on Facebook. Good morning. Hey, I want to welcome you to Kesset. If you're new, my name's Danny, and uh, I just want to wish you a Merry Christmas. I'm going to be sharing the message with you today. Uh, we are closing our tradition, legend, and lore series with today's talk, and uh, I'm, I'm really excited about it. It's been a wonderful series. Uh, we've had a, just a great response, a lot of people who uh, just were really engaged, and I, I think that was kind of the point this holiday season, was to really ask, why do we celebrate these things? Why are these things in our homes? Why do they exist? And so on. Uh, I know every Christmas season, people are really busy. I know in here right now, it's really busy. I know that you're probably sitting too close to somebody that you don't know. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but there's actually an 80% rule. Most of the time you can experience it in a theater. If there's more than 80% in the room, you're like, I don't think I like this. Uh, and I saw when we asked a few people to scoot in, I saw them like kind of get bigger in their seats. Like, like, I was like, oh, we're messing with people's holiday spirit. So thank you very much. Thank you very much for moving in. Uh, we're, we're, uh, we're a church that, uh, that, that really enjoys being together, but this might be a lot for us. Uh, I will say this though, this is, I'm confident, I'm confident, I'm going to make this proclamation. This is our last Christmas in Clark College. So, uh, yep. Now I said that the last two years as well. So both years as well, both 18 and 19. Yeah, I said, I said it all, uh, but but I am, I'm confident, and I'm, I'm, I'm stepping out in faith, Lord, that, uh, that this place has been wonderful for us, but it's going to be really neat to celebrate next year and have all the services we want and all the time frames we want and uh, all the time to be together in between and not have to rush. It's just, it's beautiful. So um, thank you all for who have journeyed with us over the last 10 years to make this happen. Uh, Tom will be back in January to give you guys more details around what that looks like, but uh, uh, it, we're definitely going to move in before... 365 days from today. I know that. I'm confident in that. It's going to be amazing. So uh, let me pray for us and uh, we'll get started. Lord, thank you for this room, for every person here, for whatever reason that you use to get them to sit in the chair and just take the next 30 minutes to, to think about you, the role you play in their life as their creator as the one they're seeking after, as the one that they're doubting, as the one they're angry with, as the one they think is just all made up. Whatever role it is, God, you play, I pray that that would just enter the room right now, that it would be okay to, to spend some time around what it means this holiday season to talk about you and the birth of your son, the truest uh, person that was ever born, and the truest meaning for Christmas. We are grateful and we are thankful for this time that we're about to have together. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I want to continue on from last week. Last week was kind of part one. This week's sort of part two, and we're talking about the actual birth of Christ. And I'm going to read one of the shorter versions in Luke chapter two, just the seven verses that talk about the actual birth of Christ and him entering into the world. This is what it says. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. So they were going to take a national census. This was the first registration when Quinarius was governor of, C of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, 
to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Every Christmas, many of us put up a cute little manger scene that represents this story. This is one example of one right here. We call these, of course, a nativity scene. And they are a staple of most holiday decorations around Christmas time. As a matter of fact, how many people grew up or now have a nativity scene in their house during Christmas? You'll see these uh, even in uh, secular situations. Uh, in the little town I live in, in La Center, we have a Christmas tree lighting, Santa sleigh thing, and then right next door we have a cardboard nativity scene. Uh, and so I was like, oh, that's cool. Like that, I didn't expect that. And, and I think that it's just such part of our tradition that, uh, that a lot of times we don't really realize why we have it. So in the name of tradition, legend, and lore, I want to talk about the tradition of putting up a nativity scene and what it means. Now, first off, uh, general nativity scenes have kind of a cast of some of the same characters. This smaller version of the verse doesn't mention every character that is in a nativity scene. This is actually my mother's nativity scene from uh, her house. And uh, please don't judge it because I already got some bad looks last time. I think it's beautiful and she's been building it. But a lot of people are like, she's missing the angels. She's missing the star. She doesn't have a camel. Like I was like all kinds of, I was like, just back off. I was going to use my nativity scene from our house that actually my wife and I were uh, gifted when we were married. But just this year when we were setting up the nativity, um, I reached around to plug something in and I, I broke Joseph's head right off. My wife was frustrated. <laughs> frustrated is the word I'm going to use. She, it was like an hour she didn't talk to me. And I came back in later and I was looking over and she was so frustrated. She took Joseph's head and put it so he was gazing in the manger. And so that's what we have this year at our house. I think I have a picture of it right here. So... <laughs> It looks like he's on the ground like this. That's what I want you. He's like, I love you, baby Jesus. I love you. Really, really, he didn't make the trip. Mary was like, nope, done with this. But that's, that's not cool. So, so we couldn't use our nativity scene. So we're going to use my mom's. Uh, most nativities have, uh, they have some sort of outline. I don't know if a lot of people realize this, but this is supposed to represent a barn that's attached to an inn. Jesus was born in a, in a manger, right? And uh, this barn kind of represents the inn, the innkeeper, that whole portion of the story. There was no room for them in the inn. There's always usually some sort of animals um, around. The Bible actually doesn't say that there were animals there, but we know because the barn was where they kept animals that most likely there were. There's obviously um, a statue that represents Mary. There is a statue that represents Joseph, the father. There is uh, usually a couple statues that represent the shepherds, who were the ones we talked about last week, that were told by angels through a, a choir of, of uh, proclamation that Jesus was born. And then, and we've talked about this every year, so I'll just touch on it. There's always three wise men. Um, the wise men actually don't belong in your nativity scene at this point, because historically we know that the wise men were seeking from far off and wouldn't have showed up to see Jesus till he was around two. They actually gave him expensive gifts that probably 
carried him further in his life and, and, and gave Joseph and Mary the ability to focus on him and, and their family. But the wise men should be, if you really want them a part of your nativity, they should be like if, on your fridge or out in your garage. Like they're there and they're looking, but they're not actually there in the barn. So that's just if you want to have a theologically sound nativity. But, uh, but who cares about that, right? So... The narrative of the nativity is so much more, though, than just this, this representation. It's so much more than a nice background for a Christmas card or a scene in a Christmas drama. Today, what I want to do is take a closer look at some important lessons to be learned from how Jesus came into the world and who was there and why we celebrate this to this day. Now, when we started this series, we took all kinds of different topics, and it was amazing to discover how many of those topics were tied to pagan roots that Christians actually took and used for bringing glory to God. This one is purely Christian. Christians read the story, and it meant something to them, and so every year they wanted to take the story out of the pages and create a tradition that was passed down for generation after generation after generation that maybe if we're not careful, we've lost. I'm going to guess that most of us has, have over-romanticized the nativity scene. We have this vision in our mind of what it was like, and I'd like to teach you a little bit today about how I think that that might be warped, that might be a little commercialized or a little well-marketed, and it may not actually be the lesson that Christians first started thinking about when they were setting these up in their homes. Here's the very first thing, and this is for all of my seeking friends in the room right now. Everybody who's like, I'm here, but I don't know if I really want to be here because church is full of people that are hypocrites and liars and self-righteous, and I'm going to say, you're absolutely right. Church is full of all those people. It, it, it's full of all kinds of people from all kinds of places, but the nativity speaks to a really special thing about this community of believers, and it's this, that Jesus isn't afraid to enter our filth. See, it's when we stop trying to oversell the church or pretend that the church is a group of people that is somehow more refined or has it more together or, or, or it has figured it all out, that's when we can finally get back down to what the church is supposed to be. It's supposed to be a group of people who aren't more refined, who haven't figured it out, who are all kinds of, of, of broken and yet still show up to worship together in a community of people that we don't all agree with. That's the lesson that the world's supposed to get from this gathering. That's why this series has been so important. That's why the Untethered series ahead of time was so important. Because I, and we're going to do this all next year again, we're going to drive you to actually have an opinion and, and make a statement about what you believe, simply because it's important for you to have a starting place that I'm going to challenge you over this next year is going to develop and grow and evolve. And it's important for you to be able to sit in a room with someone else who has a starting place different and even opposing to yours. This is what we're supposed to be good at. We're supposed to sit in a room and be able to sit with people who don't think like us and yet love them as if they were people who were just pure harmony to our soul. We think we're supposed to be in this faith community and so there's no conflict, there's no struggle, there's no difficulty. Well, just the fact that you're all sitting next to people closer than you ever have before and felt a little like, eh, is proof that's not true. It's just not true. You brought your full human into here right now. And I'm here to tell you, if I had been one of the participants that had to scoot in and sit next to somebody I didn't know, I wouldn't be happy. I'd do it, but I wouldn't be happy. Because I bring my full human as well. And I want room to move my arms and get up if I have to. Go to the bathroom and get some coffee. 
Maybe leave if I don't like what the pastor said. I don't know, but I want my own freedom. Right now I'm locked in here. These people are just starting to breathe like, I'm suffocated, I'm trapped. <laughs> <sighs> yes. So many of you are like, why? Why is he doing this? Let's talk about the Bible some more. <laughs> Jesus isn't afraid to enter into our filth, into that stuff that makes our heart beat fast. We often imagine the manger scene as clean, well-kept barn with golden yellow hay. In reality, the environment Jesus was born into was most likely covered in the filth of animals and smeared with dirt. It wasn't well lit. It was probably too hot and too cold. And I believe there were probably animals there that tried to push their way into things like animals do when they don't understand what's going on. It's likely that the smell wasn't pleasant at all. And frankly, I believe the entire situation was just Overtly humiliating. Who wants to give birth to their baby in filth, especially when the angel gave them all this time to prepare for the King of Kings and Lord of Lords? What are they doing while they look in each other's eyes thinking, we might have messed this one up? See, we accept Jesus into our hearts like this little child, and then we go out into the world thinking we're going to start a college fund for him. We're going to get him in the best preschools. I mean, we're going to do Lamaze classes. This whole thing's going to be natural. I might even water birth. I don't know. But what we're going to do, <laughs> what we're going to do is going to be fresh and, you're right, just, it's going to be good. I mean, people are going to throw uh, parties for us, and then all of a sudden you're pushing while a sheep is staring you down. And your husband's like, what is happening? I mean, the intensity of the situation really is supposed to be driven home by this humble setup and this humble story. It's probable that Jesus entered into this world and he was covered in filth the second he took his first breath. To me, this says, says that Jesus isn't intimidated by our unfavorable conditions and that we don't serve a God who tiptoes around uncleanness or is intimidated by the weakness in our humanity. For the same way he enters the world, we believe as Christ followers, when you actually finally give up trying to be your own God and admit there is one before and after you, that he's willing to enter your story. And guess what? You don't need to be any more clean than that manger. You don't have to have all your stuff figured out and all your addictions taken care of and your marriage wrapped up and all your children lined out and your business and your career and your finances. That stuff doesn't need to be all dialed in for Jesus to enter your life because that apparently isn't how Jesus enters stories. This is what it's supposed to point to. That Christ died for us and lived for us and was born for us all at our worst. Romans 5, 6, and 8, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He loves you so intensely that he came in the flesh to walk among us and then did the unthinkable by sending his Holy Spirit to live in us, just like that manger scene. It's almost just a picture of our hearts, really. And it's beautiful and it's important. The next, I think, is also pretty clear, and that's that God doesn't always give step-by-step -step instructions. I wish he did. I would have made some way different choices a few years back. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that Mary and Joseph were ready for what happened. It just happened. 
While they were, of course, they did, of course, know they were to give birth to Jesus, it doesn't sound like they had all the details. They didn't know about the census. They didn't know about the traveling journey. They had no idea. Can you imagine traveling eight and a half months pregnant on the back of a donkey for a week? Think about all the suffering Joseph went through. That's what I just want. Think about just how much she's complaining the whole time. And what is he supposed to do? Like, he didn't know. He just showed up. Like, it's not his plan. I'm just saying, it's a little bit of fatherly woes right there. Terrible. There's no plan. <laughs> I scored so many points with men in the room, and, my re- and respect for me from the women in our church just plummeted straight down to the ground. <laughs> they didn't know. Mary and Joseph were entrusted with the birth of the Son of God, the most important birth in history. And yet it seemed, it seems that it occurred without them being prepared for it any more so than any other couple on the earth also giving birth at that time. I think we can learn from this that God doesn't always give step-by-step instructions for following his will for your life. He's always there. He never leaves. You can always lean on him. But the truth is, sometimes you want to know more in order to decide to follow, and that just doesn't seem to be the way our God works. Jeremiah 29, 11, a well-known verse, says it quite plainly. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. And I, by the way, I read this out over you right now because I think somebody in this room, a few of you, you really need this in the midst of the holiday chaos and stress. Maybe for you, uh, it's like it is for me. This is the first Christmas I've ever had without an earthly dad. I don't really know what to expect. I know Thanksgiving was awkward, but we were, we celebrated Christmas together. Uh, It had our own special dad Christmas thing that we're not going to have this year. And I don't, I don't know what that looks like. I don't understand that, but I know that God does. So let's read this out. I'll read this out over all of us, including myself. God says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Notice how many times it talks about us listening and us seeking. The thing about Joseph and Mary is they didn't go, well, because we don't know what God's plan is, we're just going to stay here. They said God knew the census was coming. God knew how long the journey was. God knew that we'd need a donkey to get there. God even knew about the manger. God knew all these different things, and he still caused Mary to be uh, miraculously pregnant. He still told Joseph to take her as his betrothed, and yet All this happened in spite of the difficulty, and so they believed in God, and they sought him, and they went after him, and they listened, and we know that he showed up every single step of the way. God has a plan, always, but he always doesn't give step-by-step instruction. The next one follows on this. God's plan doesn't always look like our plan. I think this is an important part, too, of that earlier point, because Although God had a specific plan and a purpose, he didn't reveal it to Mary and Joseph. And I think, think about this in your own life, this might be because if we buy into a plan before a purpose, we may fail before we even get started. If God had told Mary and Joseph the exact conditions they would be bringing their child into, they may have said, nah, we're good. Mary, you're going to have a baby. What? Joseph's then going to try and leave you. He is? It's going to be okay. Angel's going to come bring him back. Oh, okay. Then there's going to be a census. 
and it's not going to be till like third trimester, so you're going to have to travel. What? And then when you get there, there's not going to be any room for you anywhere, but don't worry. We got a cozy, filthy manger ready for you and the baby. What? Like, I think too much information, and she might have been like, nope, nope, I don't want to do this. And I think many times when we push God for plans, we then find out what they are, and we don't understand. I I don't want to do this. This is too much for me. This is the story arc of every single uh, character that we love in every movie. It's, a, it's the story arc of somebody who starts off broken and prideful, and then they go through this journey where they get tore apart by the world and by situation and by circumstance, and then they come to find out that the entire thing was building them for this circumstance that they didn't even know was happening. And now they can be the Christmas prince. It's <laughs> a Hallmark movie that I watched recently. And now you can be a Christmas prince because you know what it's like to work that day job, to be among your people, to suffer, to be hungry, to try to sell shoes to someone. You get it. And it's all building you towards this thing. I think in many ways we forget that God does kind of work that way. Maybe that's why those stories are are, a part of us. Do you know why our church, I believe, heart of hearts of hearts, just you and I right now, is being given and, and, and remodeling this building downtown and even the time it's taken? It's because God is prepping our hearts and has been prepping our hearts for a thing he wants to do that we have not even yet discovered. When you can start to believe that way, then suddenly cost doesn't, doesn't carry the same weight. Suddenly time frames don't matter as much. Suddenly it's all about integrity and character and wanting to suffer well and be honest and transparent. All these other things happen, and then the deadlines come, and all of a sudden you walk in, and you're like, oh, look at all this stuff we learned. I have the privilege of coaching lots of churches. Do you know one of the most scary things that happens to churches are young church plants getting blessed with buildings too early? Because suddenly what they say is, and this is a quote, I don't know what's so difficult about this. We're basically anointed. God is with us. We can do no wrong. Then the guidelines are missing. The structures are missing. The, the wherewithal is missing. And suddenly the first storm comes, and they're sitting in my office wondering where all their members went. God is preparing us, and he's preparing you today. So the things in your life right now, they're preparing you for something. They're preparing you to get to a place in your own story that you're willing to seek, like Mary and Joseph, to, to, to look, to share, to set down your walls, to stop pretending you've got it all figured out, and to actually stop and be authentic with the reality that you need something more. That's maybe what God's plan is working and looking like in your own life. I believe that God will do the impossible through us, but the impossible is often beyond what our eyes can see and our ears can hear and our minds can grasp. I firmly believe that if we pursue God's purpose, the impossible will become possible, and his plan will become our plan. The manger scene was the greatest plan set into motion that has ever happened. It's a plan that continues to this day, and it's a plan we have all been invited to participate in. John 3.16, another simple verse, says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This verse is another 
far too romanticized portion of our belief system. We put it on our bodies through tattoos. We bumper sticker it. But how often do we recognize that God's plan and his love showed up on this day and that we are to remember it every single Christmas in all of its detail? See, the detail is important. These themes that I've given you, I think they're they're, they're valuable, but I don't know if they're as important as the details. See, have you ever considered, I'll put this up on the screen, that God had at the birth of his son exactly who he wanted there? That he's the God of all the universe. He's the, he's, he's the, he's the maestro of all the choir and all the singers and all the instruments. He can bring together anything he wants. So this could have looked like anything. God could have built anything. And so there's a message in who he had there. And I think that message is what we're supposed to connect with, but we've got to stop romanticizing the nativity scene in order for us to see it. We have to see that God was saying exactly what he wanted to say through these witnesses. Allow me to explain. All throughout the Bible, there's really two forces that are colliding when Jesus is born. The first force is the force we call darkness, and darkness is basically everything outside of God's will and God's purpose. It's things that damage and things that decay. John 3.19 says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. In general, people like darkness over light because darkness, you can do whatever you want. And darkness, you can be the creator and center of all things. So therefore, you feel powerful, you feel secure, and you feel all-knowing. So you hide. That's what darkness does. It gives you the ability to hide. Likewise, light is used to describe Jesus. John 8.12 Jesus himself spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So Jesus says, I'm stepping into this world and its darkness to bring light. This is why Christmas is this festival of lights. Okay, I don't know if you've put that together, but it's all about lights and all about, because Jesus is proclaiming over the darkness, the decay, the destruction, that I've come to bring harmony, that I've come to bring shalom, that I've come to bring peace, that I've come to bring balance to all these things. I've come to expose what is broken and destroyed and decayed, and I've come to bring it back together and make it whole or holy. This is the point of this. It's the collision of these two things. The nativity story is a literal picture of this happening. But the only way to do it is really look at it from an individual perspective. It's a picture of light colliding into darkness, of holiness colliding into humanity. Start off with the inn and the innkeeper and the manger he forced them into. This maybe represents people who are just too busy to see. You're too caught up providing, making money, building a business, being someone who's responsible for others who made reservations. This, this thing, this sense is, people knew this was coming for a month now. You could have called ahead. Yes, but my wife is pregnant and she's, I don't, nothing I can do to help you. I am busy building me. This Christmas, there are some of you in here who are busy building this perfect experience, and you forgot really who you're building it for. You certainly forgot, I'm not saying everybody, just some of you, you certainly forgot the person who handed you Starbucks or Blackrock on the way in today. You were like, yeah, Merry Christmas to you too. Can't wait to get to church and learn about Jesus. And really, this person's working, trying to make ends meet, maybe trying to connect with you, maybe not. Maybe they're trying to avoid all connection at all. Maybe at work, you're just trying to get through the day, head down, I got people I care about, and you folks certainly aren't part of it. You're part of my problem. 
You don't know that somebody's got a wife at home who's pregnant. You don't know that somebody's right on the borderline of falling back into their addiction and all they need is encouragement. You don't know they have nowhere to go for church or that church hurt them or that they heard you were a Christian and now they're watching to see how you celebrate the birth of Jesus, the Christianist holiday of the year. <laughs> I don't know if Christianist is a word, but <laughs> it is. Right? You don't know. So you're so busy that you hear, get a knock on the door and a 30-second conversation is all he has to say. We'll figure it out. My wife and I will be somewhere else. You can use our room. Come into our living room. Come here. We'll figure it out. Instead, he's like, no, you can go where people put their animals. The manger represents that innkeeper, which represents people that are too busy, too distracted. You got the animals in there. These are the common things in life, the things you take for granted the overlooked, the everyday things, the simple paycheck that you wish was more, the house that heats but maybe isn't as new as you wanted, the lights that turn on and the car that brought you here, or the bus, the jacket that you wish didn't have a tear in it, but it's still, it's okay. This is the stuff that's just commonly overlooked that you and I, if we're honest, we're just not grateful for and really we're just using in order to get to a new place. They're not really part of the story. And yet they're there and present. The next one is this young mother, this teenage pregnant mother. This represents the afraid. The people that are overwhelmed, maybe even with what God is doing in their life. They don't know if they can keep it together. They don't know if they can handle it. Maybe they can't even experience or see God. Maybe they had a plan. I was going to get married and then I was going to have a baby and now here I am. I know people are judging me. These are the afraid, the people that are hoping someone comes along and protects them. Someone comes along and sees them. Someone comes along and thinks they're valuable. How about the failing father? He represents the insecure, if anybody does. You know, at Kesed, we're going to continue to try to hold our fathers high. And Father's Day is a really hard holiday for dads. A lot of churches... Some churches tend to kind of rag dags and lift up moms, and uh, we're not, we're not going to do that here. That's just not our thing. And I realize that there is a higher percentage of dads who struggle, and I think there's a higher percentage maybe of dads who are insecure and don't have anybody to tell, I'm scared to death. And so they make poor choices, and they abandon, and they leave. Or, like Joseph, they stay, and they work hard, and they provide, and life sucks anyways. How about that? An angel told me I was going to be the father to God's baby. Certainly somebody's going to pay for this. <laughs> and somehow Joseph gets stuck with the bill. <laughs> like, I didn't even sign up for this. I had a three-year plan before we were having a kid. I don't have the, the need. I, I can't meet the needs. He represents the insecure, if anybody does. How about those poor shepherds? The marginalized, the ones no one really wants around. And I've said this before, and I love to sprinkle it in every nativity story. But have you ever considered the fact that Mary gave birth to Jesus? She wraps him in cloths. I do believe those shepherds were there well-timed because I think that choir was on point. They said, go to that star. Shepherd said, let's do it. So they roll up to that door. Can you imagine? Mary's got her baby. She's trying to get the dirt off. She finally does. The door knocks. These three grimy middle-aged men walk in, <laughs> just reeking of sheep. And they're like, we heard about the Christ child. We had angels. They're affirming everything they knew. And then, of course, they're going to ask, can I, can I hold him? 
as Mary, is she not looking at their hands like, oh my, what? Like I barely got the stuff off him from whatever happened over there. But the reality is, and I love this point, it's warmed my heart ever since it came to me a while ago. I love the idea that those shepherds who were used to delivering lambs were the first hands outside of Jesus' mother and father to hold the Lamb of God. How beautiful is that? They were perfectly tuned to that child and what he was about. But they were marginalized and no one else would have seen that value, but God did. And lastly, you got these traveling wise men that shouldn't be on the table at all. Should be over here somewhere. They're the ones that I think they represent well the searching and the seeking. They're the clinical. They're the educated. They're the ones in this room right now who are spiritually folding their arms across their chest thinking, you still haven't got me yet. You're funny, but my heart's still hard. <laughs> you might not be thinking that, but you're... <laughs> But you're, but you're processing, you're trying to connect, you're trying to seek. Okay, these, these wise men, they were astrologers, right? They were seeking something. They didn't know what. They were looking. And so once they got there and they found Jesus, the revelation came to them. So many of us in this room are seeking. So many of us in this room are searching. You want to believe, but you don't want to get caught up in the hype. You definitely don't want to be like those Christians you see on TV. And you don't want to be thrown in with these religious hypocrites who can't man their own lives and then claim that Jesus gave them a reason to abuse everybody else you want instead to follow the light to follow the star and so my encouragement to you today is challenge ask big questions show up but don't think you're going to sit at home and read maps and find your way to the living God because it's not going to happen because you certainly aren't it your knowledge isn't it. Your workmanship isn't it. Your fatherhood or motherhood or skill set, none of those things are it. You've seen them through the generations before. You don't even take my word. Go look at all the people around you who have got great skill sets at certain things and are cancerous in other areas of their life. People who are incredible leaders and are terrible husbands and wives. How does that work? Have you ever experienced just the laziest person uh, at work and you don't understand it and then you find out they teach every single soccer club game they can, they five days a week at this, but at work they can't show up and you just don't know how to tie these pieces together. The truth of it is people need to bring harmony back into their world where they can own what they're strong at, where they can have clarity and, and um, um that's the word I want to use because I want to be gentle with it. Not, not conflict, but confrontation around what they're not good at and can sit in a relationship with somebody else. By the way, this whole description is called discipleship where someone goes, hey, have you ever considered that? That makes sense to me, but have you ever considered that? You, you, it doesn't matter if you show up at every single thing for your kid and then everybody at work thinks you're a liar and a cheat. It, you have to find a place in your life as a seeker and someone searching where you reach this place of harmony that you're able to say, I don't know what's there, but I know I've got to move from here. I've got to move from here. I've got to bring balance into my life. I've got to be somebody people can rely on and somebody that asks hard questions when I need help. I don't have to figure it all out. I can seek that star without knowing what's at the bottom of it. You see, all of these people, they all represent exactly who God wanted in his, in, in his story. They're exactly who God came for. It's all of these that first gave witness to that newborn child. It's the distracted, the overlooked, 
the afraid, the insecure, the marginalized, and the searching, those are the people that God had at the story of the birth of Christ because those are the people he would later die for. It's light colliding with darkness, and that's why you set it up every single year in your home because it's your story. <laughs> it's your story and my story colliding with his. This is who we worship. This is who we sing about. This is why Christmas matters so much. Because he came to meet you right where you are. It's that child's cry that forever pierced the darkness on that silent night. And it's that that changed everything for everyone. If you've never sought after that light, if you've never said, I'm done circling my own existence, trying to make more of me, I wanna give you an opportunity to do that now. So I'm gonna ask every head to bow and every eye to close. Even if you don't believe, that's okay. Just sit and reflect or meditate on whatever it is that you do to, to center yourself. Maybe try this. If you want to know where this light is within the, within the story of you, start off by just saying, it's me. Maybe even God, it's me. I'm tired of doing everything myself. I'm tired of trying to find meaning in things that just don't matter. God, I'm going to step out. I'm going to seek after you. I want to find you beneath that light waiting for me. Would you please just come into my world, come into my story, remake it. Give me that sense of harmony, that sense of peace, that sense of being that cannot be shaken. Forgive me, God, for the mess Forgive me, God, for the things that I've left undone. I know that through you, all of it can be made new. With everyone's head bowed and eyes closed, there's others in this room, and you follow Jesus a long time. You found the light. But somewhere along the way, you got distracted. You started cleaning up the barn and putting away the animals and shooing out the shepherds and you tried to make something that that was okay as it is different and you got caught up in all of it and missed the one who was at the center of it and so I ask for just a just kind of a, a Christmas refresh for you I ask that there would be a sense of remembering that child who was born in spite of all the things around them, that that light would be enough, that it wouldn't be about performance or, or marketing or, or, or even things outside of your control, that it would be about him and who he was and what he was about, that we would get back to that story. God, I pray that as a church, we never lose our focus around what this really means. I pray, God, that we see you, that we experience you, and that we are moved by you this Christmas season. In 
In Jesus' name, amen.